performance has this presence and the confrontation with the viewer, which I think works very well with what I want with art. I want a confrontation. I want to make people think for themselves rather than to follow the stream. And I think performance art is so appropriate for this. That was Lilibet Koenka Rasmussen. And this is Nordic Portraits. Lilibet Cuenca Rasmussen is a performance and visual artist, perhaps best known for her meticulously staged theatre performances, music videos, and raw documentaries. Her Danish-Filipino heritage plays a large role in her work as she explores issues of cultural identity, gender, religion, and social constructs. She was part of the Danish group show at the 2011 Venice Biennale with her critically acclaimed piece Afghan Hound and has been awarded the prestigious Ekesbær Medal of Honor for her extraordinary contribution to the artistic landscape in Denmark. Lilibet, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you for inviting me. I wondered if we could start by going all the way back to the late 1970s, mm-hmm. where as an eight-year-old, you arrived with your family in regional Denmark, having spent your whole childhood in Manila in the Philippines. Can you recall what awaited you when you arrived in this new unknown land? Yeah, it's a very clear picture, like it was yesterday. I arrived the 18th of April and um, we had a pit stop from the airport to where I was going to live in Stones, where my father is from. And there was like piles and mountains of snow on the beach. And I remember I was just taking the snow in my hand and like just tossing it around with the snowballs in April. (laughs) And it, yeah, it was weird, wild. And I felt really cold (laughs) coming from this tropical Manila. And we were staying at my grandparents' house until we found our own house. Three days after our arrival, I already went to a Danish folk school. And that was like, everyone was just staring at me. Who is this person? She's got black hair. She's got very big brown eyes. And I I don't know. I didn't understand what they were saying to me. But um, after three months, as I remember it, I could speak fluent Danish. It was really wild just to change your language so quickly. Of course, your father was a Danish sailor. Mm -hmm. Did you speak Danish with him growing up? No, I couldn't. Uh, He wasn't much home, (laughs) so I didn't see him much. So I could very few words, yeah, and few children's songs in Danish. That's the only thing. So what was your experience like then growing up in a regional part of Denmark, feeling different from the start? I just felt like people were staring at me all the time and my family. I felt I was standing out all the time and I didn't like this case. I just wanted to have blonde hair and be called Tina. People always don't pronounce my name. They they think it's Lisbeth. So I, I'm not so fond of the name Lisbeth because people don't read my name as they should. So I was very frustrated about being so different. How were your teenage years then? 
um, also felt different. Like I felt that the boys were afraid of me. <laughs> it's like because I was so different to look at. So, yeah. Did you sense that over time you were more and more accepted into the community, yourself and your family? Well, I, I was not accepted. It's just that there's always this kind of feeling of you're not like them. But it wasn't that I wasn't accepted, actually. I think that I was very welcomed immediately. And I felt it was a genuine feeling of being welcomed. It was just like always being the one who looked different. And also, it's very interesting when you're not born in a place, you have this, even though you adapt very fast, like I did, I spoke the language after three months, there's certain things like sayings that you just don't understand because you're not born in this place. My Danish grammar is very complicated because there are really no rules. There are more exceptions than rules. So like it and Ian, I think it took me 20 years to understand the logic because to understand there's no logic. Yeah. So I'm very aware of the Danish language. A lot of Danish people don't speak it properly also. <laughs> but um, yeah. Well, you mentioned language. I, I read that you, from a very young age, wanted to be potentially a translator working within literature. Is that because you had this innate sense of words and the difference between languages? Mm, I think for me... To speak another language is like performing. I lived in different countries and then I felt like when I was living in Paris to speak French, it was like I changed a little bit my character. I used my arms more and I opened my mouth more when I have to pronounce the words. Or in Spanish, I was another character. So I was maybe already into performance art without knowing it at this time. I just thought that a language, I mean, I'm not a very science person, but the grammar was my mathematics. I, I just love to find out, like also German language. I love German. <laughs> so I, for me, that was the math the construction of grammar. And uh, I mean, always been interested in literature when um, growing up in the province of Stones in Denmark, I was diving into stories and books. I lived in a very small village called Højrup. And there was this bobus, like this bus coming with all these books every Tuesday. And I went there and I took like two sacks full of books to go home to my room and read. And my grandma was like, hmm, why did you borrow so many books? I mean, it's coming back next week, but I just need these books. And I read them all. <laughs> I was really going into these stories. And then it's also a perfect way to learn a language thoroughly to read books. You mentioned living in other countries and that sense of adventure took you as a 17-year-old to the United States, mm -hmm. although probably not a region of the US that most people would associate with having a thriving cultural scene. Yeah, and, and I wanted to go in the South because everyone wanted to go to New York or California. I always want to do the opposite as like mainstream. <laughs> I had a dream about Texas, but there wasn't any host family for me in Texas, so I ended up in Arkansas. Can you tell me about Lucy McKenzie. Yeah. Oh, you know about her. 
Uh, wow, I'm surprised. Um, yeah, well, this was a woman I met. She was in Lions Club in Little Rock. And I had some problems with my family, my host family. I moved around and they actually didn't want me back. So I was almost getting sent back to Denmark before time. It was really embarrassing for me. But Lucy McKenzie, she was very... Um, I think she saw something in me. It's like, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to find a new family for you. And she took me to all these different events. She took me to Memphis to see Elvis Presley's house. But what she also did was really a turning point for my whole life to take me to a Auguste Rodin exhibition. And I was just like, she couldn't get me out of there. And she also had her own children. And they, you know, they like, mom, she always wants to see art. And it's like a little boring and dragging us to all these exhibitions. And I have never seen any art exhibition before my whole life. And after this exhibition, I just, okay, when I come back to Denmark, I'm just going to skip gymnasium. And I just want to go to Paris and I want to visit all these art museums in Paris. Yeah. So she meant so much to me. Your description of your time in Paris in other interviews has almost reinforced this idealistic view that we all have of the city, living a bohemian life, complete with the artist boyfriend. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, was it that great? Was it such a wonderful point in your life? I was so happy every day in my life. <laughs> For once, I remember stepping out of my bed and I was like, I'm so happy I'm living in the city. What was it about Paris that captured your heart? It was the art. I mean, because it was a new door for me and there was so much of it. Even it was like from another century, but I had no idea about contemporary art at that time. I had no clue. I was into all the old stuff. It was a starting point. I think my first contemporary art meeting was probably Pierre Kierkeby, and I tried to paint like him for a year or so. <laughs> so when did you first stumble upon performance as an art form? Performance, oh my God, that's way like years after. I have to say that I came back to Denmark and studied literature and I was really disappointed by it. But I met a lot of interesting people, like a very well-known person here in Denmark, Knud Roma, who was also studying university. And he had a crush on one of my friends. So he always sent through me, I was like, a, yeah, what can you say, a messenger. He always hung out with contemporary artists from the Art Academy in Copenhagen. He sent me all these, um, by, you know, real mail, <laughs> like these invitations. And I thought they were interesting to go to these art exhibitions. And my friend, she was afraid of him, so she didn't go. But I went and saw this contemporary art. I thought it was so weird. But I got to know the whole scene. And then like two years after, I was myself in the art school. <laughs> Did you know at that point in art school what particular 
discipline you wanted to work in? Yeah, actually. Well, then I went to high school in Ere and I met this, um, there was a course, a performance course with Per Fluhound, I remember. <laughs> and it was very crazy. I just thought, I want to be a performance artist. I want to go to art school and I want to do performance because already then performance was really no go. I told you, I want to do what the rest is not doing. So I thought I could take that one because <laughs> no one's doing this. But then I went to art school and it wasn't the thing you did there. So it was just maybe a year I was doing like very performative photography and also videos where I staged my family. But then I went more into documentary. That was the thing in the 90s. The media department was the biggest department and Everyone was doing videos of the families and themselves or their neighbors. or and That was a thing in the 90s. And I kind of, I really liked it. And I went back to the Philippines a lot to do my own documentaries, to see it as an adult, as an artist, and getting to know the country again. That's what I was doing in art school. Why was performance so uncool at that time? Um. It was about realism in the 90s. Relational aesthetics was also just born there, and but also the documentary. I see it as a pre-reality TV. Now, reality TV is so big. It's almost the only thing you can see if you want to watch TV. I mean, this is the most popular thing people are talking about and want to watch. I never watch TV, but... It feels like a big thing. And that's what maybe art students were doing in the 90s already then, um, including myself somehow. So it wasn't about staging. It was uncool to stage or at least in Denmark, it was not the thing for sure. Hmm. You mentioned you got your first taste of it at a high school class. What do you remember about it specifically being so crazy? I think that it was, um, I just think I like to act somehow or be in the moment, which is very interesting because I'm not in the moment very often. I feel I'm so many places at the same time. So it's weird to do performance because you have to be so much in the moment. But maybe this is the time where I actually condense myself to be in the moment because I have no choice <laughs> in when you're doing a performance. If you get out of the moment and go somewhere else, then you actually lost your audience. You lost everything and people feel it immediately. I've tried to get out of the moment during a performance and it's super scary because you really lose your needle or your thread and get really distracted. You have to like go back immediately when you feel this. So sometimes you, when you are a certain personality, maybe, for example, in my artwork, I have to do the opposite as what I am as a person. Maybe you could say that, yeah. Where does this need, this desire to go in the opposite direction of the norm come from, do you think? <laughs> I don't know why. Um, why do I have to be so like that? Um, maybe it's just my personality, yeah. Do you feel that's because you were confined to playing the role of the outsider when you were younger? Hmm, I haven't thought about that, but but maybe, yeah, I got that role and I'm sticking to it or I don't know. I just don't think mainstream is so interesting. 
What I also found out that I told you how frustrated I was being different. But then I found out when I got older that it was actually a plus to be different. <laughs> it was like suddenly I could use it for something constructive and people appreciated it. Well, maybe people always appreciated it, but then I could appreciate it myself somehow. Yeah, so I'm probably just repeating myself like, being on the contrary, doing the opposite. But I don't know what to do now because everyone is doing performance. Uh, <laughs> so I have to find something else. I started to do sculptures. But uh, I mean, it's not a new thing to do sculptures. One of your early breakthrough projects was a video art piece called Absolute Exotic. Yeah. One of the lyrics being, it's in to be a Negro, it's out to be an Asian girl. Mm-hmm. This was a music video that very much played on stereotypes and the exoticization of you by Danes. How was this received at the time when you came out with such a direct and provocative message? Mm -hmm. It um, divided the art scene intensely. Some people thought I was just too much. And um, some people thought I was a crazy woman going out of my mind. And some people just thought I was just very powerful and and brave, yeah. But the people who didn't know me from the art scene, who just saw the work, they don't think about the private story in it or the personal. But I went straight to deadline with Martin Krasnick before even showing the work in the museum because my gallerist at this time, Birgitte Kierkov, she she showed it to everyone who went to the gallery. And then there was a friend of hers like, can I borrow this one? I'm going to take it to DR. And then I went straight to deadline to explain identity politics. And yeah, I think it's even now a very relevant piece. I probably wouldn't have done this piece now because I wouldn't dare to. I take more care. I think people take more care. Also, as artists, we are, I'm getting more conscious about borders I'm not sure if it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that there's a new structure and that the old structure is being removed, we hope, and building a new structure, the young artists and Black Lives Matters and all these directions. It does something to the art, which I'm a little, I'm very concerned of, actually. Do you feel that you wouldn't have shared as much of your personal story as overtly in your work if you'd had your time again? No, it's not the personal. I'm not afraid of sharing the personal. It's more about maybe the stereotypical things. But I think to use stereotypical things is like an entrance to involve everyone in your work rather to have to code it so much that there's so many people from the outside who don't read it. You know, stereotypes has come to stay. Maybe it has a negative atmosphere to it. And, and the stereotype typical is always has this negative vibe. But everyone is using it. It's a language. Like you say yes, it means yes. You say no, it means no. And to use it, for example, in your artwork or to describe something, you open the door immediately and then you can make things more complex by using the stereotypical things. I don't think it has to be like you were judging using it. You've talked a lot in the past about the importance of having surface level or 
even for lack of a better term, superficial elements that invite the viewer into your work. Can you share a little about how you employ that technique? Mm, yeah. Um, I use surface a lot, like, for example, in my characters that I built my stories upon, there are costumes and clothing as surface, materiality as surface, but there's something behind the surface that I'm inviting people to. I use the surface as, yeah, an invitation to, if you can connect to some universal codes, to invite people into the piece. But that's why also I like to work with transdisciplinary field because it opens up for more people, but also the work in itself, it can be on different levels. It can be on the musical level, the visual level, the textual level. At the same time, when these can operate together, I feel like the work can open up for even more people. Kind of a democratic thing to use the transdisciplinary field somehow. Also, as an artist, I feel it's a great challenge for me to open my own senses and also to understand how a musician works together with me with words or how do I work with a costume designer. I want to make a very sculptural piece for this. How does this designer interpret my visions? And I think it's interesting. When one experiences your work, you are obviously front and center as a solo artist. But I noted that behind the scenes, you have a lot of collaborations with others to build these worlds that you inhabit. Do you enjoy that aspect of collaboration? Yeah, I think it's a learning process. And I could say expropriate some of the work. I feel it's so much connected to my idea anyways. Um, and I, I also just don't know how to sew and I'm not interested in learning it <laughs> as well. My work comes from the concept and the text and the visual ideas. So I need help to create the atmosphere with music or the visual elements in the costume. So, mm. These characters or alter egos you have developed, can you take us a little behind the scenes of how you go about creating them? I think to a project like Miss United, where you're mm -hmm. performing as a series of characters. And I was just curious about your creative process in developing what seems to be very detailed and specific universes for each of them. Um, the concept and the text is very often the primary thing. In Miss United, it was... Actually, in the beginning of my performance direction that uh, I got invited to do a lot of commission performance works. And all my performance works previously were like five minutes <laughs> because they came from my video works. And Miss United, the idea was to have like a babushka doll. When you open the biggest, there's always a new character in the babushka. They look alike, but they're never alike, actually, the real babushka dolls. There's always a difference in the different sizes. So that was the idea to create a character that had a lot of layers. And later came the text that I wanted to be as schizophrenic a personality can be, like being many different characters in one and to actually be able to embrace that and use it as a force 
But the music, I work with Anas Christofferson, uh, the composer, and I asked him, can you make like five different tracks, <laughs> like from punk to rock to electronica? And so the music also follows the character. Hmm. On a personal level, what is it about music for you that compels you to integrate it so often in your work? Is it just a great medium for connecting with an audience? Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I have never learned to play any instruments myself. I wish I had, but I feel it's just too late <laughs> now. But music has this immediacy that I really like, and it has this abstract level that I, I don't have it. When I work with visual arts, I feel it's my mind I use, and then, of course, my body when I perform. But I feel music is ungraspable it's very hard to explain music but it's so when it's there you just react to it whether you like it or not you you just have this immediate reaction to music that i think it's very amazing and it's very useful to tell a story but it's always interesting when i work with composers and musicians that I tell them and talk and show them a text, but they don't really care or they don't really, they just make the music. And then if there's a connection, it just happens somehow. It's super interesting because they just, they just do something. It's the same with dancers. They have this, the tool is in their bodies. There's like this, um, why don't we just do something instead of I'm always up in my head, you know? Yeah. You've mentioned in the past that you feel that performance and your art at large has been able to help allow yourself to explore things led by your heart rather than keeping everything at an analytical level. Is that a fair description? I think that's what the composers help me to do. Or when I work with dancers, just like do something, just, you know, get out of your head. <laughs> um, that's what I admire from these professions, I think. But I think it's also when you go to art school, you are really trained to use your head. <laughs> you have to use your head. You're trained to work conceptually. And this is maybe a damage, but I also think it's a very good tool to have because it helps me to analyze my projects in the process. I never do things just without having thought about it. But it is the conceptual thing I have to figure out. I don't start a production without having thought it out thoroughly. But maybe it also comes from, I remember, like when I was in literature. That's also what I hated about it, that we had to desiccate all the literature. We never read the literature. It was all about how to dissect it and deconstruct it. But it was such a useful tool, and I still use it a lot somehow when I'm doing my art projects. But I hated it at that time, but I'm using it now. <laughs> Can you give us an insight into your mindset when you're performing these works? I, I think of something like Cockfight, mm -hmm. where you're dressed as a chicken in a cage. How much of that performance is improvised versus meticulously planned and executed accordingly? Mm, it's very different from project to project. Cockfight was very improvisation for the camera. But the absolute exotic choreography, I have made a choreography actually, yeah. <laughs> was that based on 
any sort of traditional dance or was that no it's i you know i always don't uh, like to be going one directional i always get inspired by different things i always make hybrids it was a mixture of many different dances that i put to my own yeah it's very often like that like recently i did a lot about rituals and it's also how did I create these rituals in the performances and the videos? And they were composed of different South American Indian rituals, Catholic rituals. I, I mixed rituals. And it's interesting how I feel that I can do it because I'm like such a mixed person to, if you see me, I like people can't really trace where I'm from. Actually, I don't look like I'm Danish or Asian. I look maybe more Indian like indigenous American or something like that. I don't know what I look like, but I feel like I look more like I'm from South America than Asia or Europe. So I feel like I could be the person who actually make hybrids. Yeah. Do you ever worry that performance art can descend into being shocking or provocative just for shock value's sake? Mm -hmm. Easily dismissed as something that's just trying to be controversial to the untrained eye? For the untrained eye, I, I don't know. No, I'm not afraid. <laughs> Are there boundaries? Mm, it's so funny because in the beginning of my performance direction in 2006, I discovered I didn't know anything about performance. So I started to study and it was impossible to get literature about performance art in Denmark. So I always went, I went traveling I went to a bookstore or a museum like UK and US to have all these books about performance art. So I started to discover that the tradition of performance art, I'm so happy that I wasn't born at this time because I wouldn't have dared to do these works that the previous generation did. I don't have to do it because they did it. <laughs> so I feel I can be in a certain place now that I can work against that or work with that and develop that tradition and bring it to somewhere else. You know, it could be, for example, like the French artist Hollande. She made very radical works. She operated her face to look like different classical paintings. That's a very radical thing to do. I don't have to do it. She did it. <laughs> I think that's a very extreme, you know, example of how art and reality really clash and it's identity politics in like a very radical way to change your face. Carolee Schneeman was also pushing so much the boundary of what the body can do as a female body. And I can name so many more. They really were very radical. I don't see myself as radical at all. Why not? I mean, not compared to them, maybe... I can be it, but I'm using, yeah, more like the language combination with the body, but I'm not like a body artist like them. So my works are more different layers because I use the transdisciplinary to make my works. So this is what I'm trying to do. It's not a different thing. I mean, it's been done also 100 years ago. In the futurist area, people were working a lot across different art expressions and working together. So I'm so happy that it's doable again somehow. It gets more accepted these days. 
you are very honest about citing your inspirations and that you're not necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm thinking about a project like Avoid, yeah, where you reenacted famous performances. What were you setting out to achieve with that project? Um, first of all, I was frustrated about not having the accessible information about these historical pieces. Now you can get it through the yeah internet and you don't even have to find these books anymore. Everything is almost accessible online and for free. It's crazy, but it wasn't at this time. So I was really um, frustrated about not having access to this information that my idea was to re-perform them because that was my access <laughs> to, to these works in my mind, how I could read very little information about a performance. For example, like Shigeko Kubota, she made a very iconic piece called Vagina Painting. I couldn't find any information. I only saw this picture of her like having a paintbrush between her legs and painting with it. And I was just for years wondering, how did she do it? And, and so I invented my own way how to create this piece, but not knowing exactly how she did it, which I think was very interesting. Also, I think that this time in art history was so interesting. I think they were just breaking so many boundaries, like going against the, the commercial art scene. That's why performance art was invented because there was a inflation in society everything was going well economy we didn't care about climate and then performance art was the activist and they went against all this prosperity and so i think there was so much uh, energy and frustration in this but also from a lot of women artists who actually went into performance art and did this very radical works and they did it for me also. I feel I'm so um, thankful for that, that they actually already made a road where I could walk. If you're carrying that torch for them, what is the next barrier that you see needing to be broken? That's a very good question. Um, uh, the challenge, I have to look where I am now because everything moves so fast. And you're so much in your own bubble sometimes that to think about that, it's almost, it's a mist, you know. But as I see it right now, I think the greatest challenge for an artist or for individuals is like, yeah, I feel very limited sometimes in what you can do and what you can say and how you can say it. And maybe it's a good exercise to change a lot of the old structures that we don't want anymore and that is the positive thing but I feel like surveilled somehow or maybe it's my own insecurity but I feel that the reason why I was very attracted to art I think it was boundaryless and you know you could you could just do so yeah that's a challenge is it tricky to document performance because obviously as with a documentary it's one version of events mm -hmm. that have taken place does that excite you that performance is ethereal it's fleeting in that moment and it's it's gone yeah 
it's a very, I mean, I wish I could have a PhD in just digging into this question. <laughs> How do you document performance? I made a course about it where I teach in Bergen Art Academy. But I think that it's a very big question. I always tell my students who work with performance, please think about this. Do it. A very radical performance artist, Tino Segal, he refuses to document, which I think it's, that's what he does. So, you know, I can't copy that. I think it's brilliant. But I insist on the documentation and I, I explore the documentation. I question it each time and I don't have a fixed answer how to do it. I'm still like in the middle of exploring it. And I do it very differently from project to project. But I insist on, I call it a translation. Of course, there's a documentation and that's a registration of what happened. But then I have a translation. In some works, I actually go back to the studio and refilm it with another gaze in a quiet, you know, where the lighting is perfect. And I stage it differently and I call it a translation because then I perform it for the camera rather for an audience and someone is documenting it. Or I do print photography or I actually sometimes I just make paintings of a performance mm -hmm. and not documenting it. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, um, I made a series of performance where I do body prints. But so I, it's very, um, yeah, almost spiritual way like repetitive performances ritualistic performances for example i made a 12-hour performance in gallery elon where i was doing thumbprints on his huge window for 12 hours and i made a whole painting of my thumb with black ink for 12 hours so it wasn't about documenting that the documentation was on the window <laughs> and he wa he was really excited about it he wanted to sell it but it didn't happen so we had to wash it off <laughs> but i also did similar things on canvas what interests you about octopuses they are so amazing this uh, animal i've always been fascinated by octopuses um, what is it? This very amazing book is called uh, The Vampire Octopus. It's written by a scientist and a philosopher. And it's a black book with a gold print of an octopus on it. It's an amazing book. And it's an explanation of how this vampire octopus, there are so many similarities to human beings and them, but they're much more advanced than in humans. This book you have to read. I will look up for you what it's called. <laughs> but um, I don't know, it, the, the camouflage abilities that octopus have, all these tentacles that can do many things at the same time. Its sexuality is very interesting. If you read this vampire octopus book, it's like crazy. And they have blue blood. Oh, there are so many things. <laughs> I could talk for hours about it. But... Um, I think I want to be an octopus and I made this octopus costume. <laughs> it's very elaborate. Yeah, where it can change colors. If I touch a different color, it will be that color. It's a very technical costume. And then, yeah, I copied my own hand six times. So I had like eight tentacles on the suit. It's very heavy. You also 
painted with octopus ink yeah. on your body onto silk as silk print. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Very fishy, very smelly. <laughs> yeah, in this works, it's about using a very concrete material as what the body is. So I was trying to make an abstraction of something that was so concrete, but it's also a way to explore performance in a different way. As we're talking about documentation for me, it's not documentation, but it's a, in a way there's like a level of what is interesting and what is not interesting. And you don't know what you get and you can't redo this print. You know, when it's there, it's there. You just can't erase it. It's just stuck to the silk. You have an interesting relationship with Konvi, the Danish philosopher, hymn composer from the 1800s. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first came into contact with Konvi's writings? And I was particularly interested in this whole concept of Trauerduk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I had this great project in Horsens Art Museum in 2019 where I was invited to do an exhibition on national identity. I was so happy to get invited. It was a solo show, and I realized I had already a lot of works about national identity. So there were also some of them in the show, but I made like 10 new works. And I was reading theories about Danishness also from a lot of foreign theorists, And then I just kind of got stuck to Convi (laughs) because I thought that I was, um, I was a little surprised that I wasn't taught about Convi in elementary school because I think that in Convi I found the core of a common Danish identity. Even your right wing or left wing in politics, I feel that Convi is something that connects the Danish people, but not only the Danish people, but the fundamental Danish way of thinking. So that's why I really got into him. And the reason why I think that Kronvi really hasn't been studied in elementary school is that we have him everywhere (laughs) in the hymns and that maybe we actually forgot to study him (laughs) because we think he's so part of the Danish culture, which I think is a really big mistake because I think people have a wrong picture of Grundtvig if you didn't read about really what he was trying to do. Because before, I think I just saw it as this old priest who wrote all these hymns and very square. Or, I mean, like the typical picture you have of Grundtvig is this old man, this kind of authority. But he was so, he was the biggest feminist I didn't know that he was hiding a female writer in his house because this writer was insisting on writing and every time she wanted to say something in public, she was just taken away physically from the men. And so Grundvi and his wife were hiding this artist because she wanted just to write and she couldn't write because she was a woman. I thought that was like, wow. But it's also his ideas that instead of the workers or the peasants like holding them down and suppressing them by not educating them is the worst thing you could do. I mean, it's better to feed everyone with wisdom and knowledge 
and to have this universal way of approaching education, I think that's very um, foresighted. Also, he was in the Romantic time, and it's so very relevant in many societies that there's so much hierarchy. I think they should read Grundvi and his visions of how it's better to feed everyone with knowledge instead of suppressing the working class because it doesn't give society anything. There's so much paid back if you educate people. Um, I really love Grundvi. <laughs> I think he's genius. And what was it specifically about national identity that you wanted to communicate through your work? As again, I feel that because I'm a hybrid person that can look like I'm not that or the other, I think that because white men are not so popular at the moment, <laughs> whatever they do, they will get punished or get a critique or I don't know. So I could be the person to talk about this very Danish thing and not maybe blame to be a nationalist because Yeah, well, I'm not a nationalist, but I think there are also so many good things about Danish culture that we don't have to be tagged as nationalists just because we actually find some very good things about it. I think in general, I've been traveling around the world and I think that the Scandinavian social structure is one of the most exotic in the world. It's so unique and we don't understand it because we're living here. A lot of Danes, I feel they're so spoiled and a little ignorant about what's going on in the world. You know, they just, we take things granted. And uh, I think it's a very spoiled attitude. Yeah. Do you think the Danish culture is getting better at embracing the other? Mm, I think I felt that I was embraced when I arrived. I mean, I felt that I was welcome, but it was my own struggles that I was dealing with. But I, I remember I got Danish classes immediately. My family got help so we could kind of get inside the Danish society as soon as possible. My mother got Danish classes for free. We got a lot of help from the Danish system to get integrated in the 70s. I don't know if the social system has this capacity anymore, simply. It doesn't seem like it. So I have to answer yes and no <laughs> to your question. In some directions, there are less capacity, but in some other ways, people are getting used to that Denmark is getting more multicultural. But it's hard when you live in Copenhagen. It's so different to be in the province of Denmark. It's just another thing. And I don't live there anymore. <laughs> and I'm happy about that. <laughs> Just in closing, Lilibet, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about tunophobia. Mm -hmm. You recently did a project where, if I'm not mistaken, the premise was everyone is afraid of women. Men are afraid of women. Women are afraid of women. Yeah. And as part of this performance, you would hypnotize the audience to try and change people's minds about women. And I'm curious, what did you find through that experience? Um, I think it would be nice to also try to hypnotize people that it's not from the art world, because I think a lot of the people from the art world are feminist. <laughs> They have to be. <laughs> But um, my experience was actually that people were kind of happy after the hypnosis. They were like enlightened. I feel like they were relieved 
from a pressure or something like that. That was my experience. And for you, did it change your perception in any way? Um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to smoke a cigar as a woman, that people just change their view on you. I remember I was practicing how to hold the cigar before my performance, just in like normal civil clothes on Prelgel, where I was doing the performance. And uh, Lars Lykke and... Uh, <laughs> Former Danish Prime Minister. Yeah, yeah and another politician. They were in a conversation. They just passed by. And blah, 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 talk, talk, talk. And then they actually went backwards when they saw me. And they look at me, so what a nice cigar you're holding in your hand. It's like, yeah, isn't it nice? And like, yeah, and they would look like very amazed. So what, what is it you like about it? We just like to see it, the whole thing. And it was uh, funny that you can just change an image or a structure by a woman holding a cigar. It's interesting because I remember last year that Chart, the big art fair in Copenhagen, they wanted to just exhibit women just to focus on the problem that women artists, they're not in the museum's collections and they're not in very many uh, private galleries and they do less solo exhibitions. Yeah. So for Chart, of course, I thought that, okay, I have to make a site-specific work with this context. And I have always worked a lot with feminism and gender is one of my main topics in all my works. I deal with gender. And then I thought, <clears throat> again, <laughs> we discuss this every year, just before these art fairs, every year and what, nothing changes. So I decided to make a new piece about it. And I just wanted to be more manipulative this time. So that's why I took the hypnosis as an act of being manipulative. Finally, what would you like to see as your legacy as an artist? I, I don't know if you've given any thought to it at all, but I know you're very hands-on with teaching. Yeah. And I wondered if that plays into what you're hoping to leave behind as a performance artist particularly. Yeah. Um, what is so great about performance and the reason why I still do it is because performance has this presence and a confrontation with the viewer, which I think works very well with what I want with art. I want a confrontation. I want to make people think for themselves rather than to follow the stream. And I think performance art is so appropriate for this. And being like a teacher and trying to be part of what's going on in young people's mind. I think it's such a privilege to follow them and to guide them and to actually just be part of their... Um, I learned so much from being part of this youth somehow. But I also feel it's nice to be able to give back what I feel I got from other generations. I told you all about this amazing female artist I have been inspired by doing performance art. And to be alive and to give these young people some directions and guide them and help them, I think it's a very big privilege. And I, yeah, I don't see it separate from my practice Teaching is part of my practice, if you can say so. Hmm. 
such wonderful insights. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your story so openly with us today, Lilibet. You're welcome. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.